This is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used in churches for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used in the lectionary in the coming weeks. The passage for this week is Luke chapter 3, verses 7 to 18. It's the reading for the third Sunday of Advent in the year C cycle of the lectionary, and it happens to be one of the biblical texts for December 12, 2021. As we turn to this third chapter in Luke's gospel, we begin to see what John the Baptist's message is all about as he's preaching in the wilderness before the ministry of Jesus really begins in earnest. There were many coming up to hear John and to hear his message, and they were welcomed by these words according to Luke's description of John's preaching. You offspring of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's kind of an inhospitable welcome for those who came out to hear John the Baptist preaching in the Jordan River Valley, probably somewhere just beyond Jericho. It was a well-known a fact that vipers or asps would flee in front of a brush fire. So if there were a fire in an open field, the, the snakes would try to flee in front of the flames. And so John uses this metaphor of snakes trying to flee a fire to describe those who are coming out to hear him. And what John is really questioning is their intentionality. Why are they there? Are they just curious to hear some strange desert preacher, or are they actually there to engage with the message that he's proclaiming? He gives them quite clear advice as to what they're to do when they come hear him preach. He tells them to produce fruits that are consistent with repentance. He also tells them what not to do. Uh, Don't say that we have Abraham as our father. So there's a contrast between what John tells them to do and what he tells them not to do. And it's quite clear. This is about fruitful practices versus spoiled entitlement. It's really a hard word for them to hear. And in many ways, John's preaching is kind of a a sorting, if you will, a winnowing of those who have come to hear his message, that there's really actually only one way to be saved from this judgment that's to come not just like snakes or vipers trying to flee a growing fire. No, John tells them that the way to flee correctly from this fire, in other words, the way to be rescued from it, is to produce fruits consistent with repentance. Uh, To make the point, John elaborates on what not to do, uh, the entitlement mentality. Surely those who came out to hear John were dominantly from the Jewish community in Jerusalem who had descended from the mountains in Jerusalem down to the Jordan River Valley to hear him preach. And so when they hear John preach, there's an uncertainty about whether or not they need to take any action or to do anything because each member who came down from the mountain in Jerusalem to hear him, those who are part of that Jewish community, believed themselves, of course, to be the offspring of Abraham. And what John is telling them is that God can raise up children of Abraham, even from stones laying on the ground. Stones were everywhere in the Jordan River Valley. They're ubiquitous. You you can't miss all these stones laying on the ground. And John says that God could raise up children from these. There's a little bit of wordplay here in the original language, not the Greek in which this text is written, but in the Aramaic in which John would have been preaching in. 
that the word for stones and sons happens to rhyme. So when John says that God could raise up from these stones children, the word for children and the word for stone probably rhyme with each other. It's a little play on words. And what John is essentially asking is, what is it that makes Abraham one's father? Is it genetics or is it fruit? Uh, the contrast is rich, and it's one that the Apostle Paul is going to pick up on later in his writings, especially in his letter to the Romans, about what it means to be a child or an offspring of Abraham. And John really wants to bring the point home here that what makes one a child of Abraham isn't necessarily the genetics or the biology. It has to do with whether or not we behave in a way that's consistent with Abraham. That's what makes us one of his children. John really closes the point then with this metaphor of the ax that's at the base of the tree. And it's really his metaphor for judgment, that trees that do not bear fruit are chopped down. And so what John is really beginning to help his hearers understand in his preaching is that this judgment that we've been waiting for to the end of time, if you will, this eschatological judgment, as it's called, John says it's beginning right now. Not in the future any longer. It's beginning at this very moment. And note in John's preaching, his emphasis on behaviors, practices, doings. These are the markers of that judgment. And that's really the key passageway here for us to hear. That fruitful living is the key to abundant life. John makes clear that he's introducing a judgment that will eventually be revealed in someone else. And that Someone else, of course, is Jesus. But John challenges the status quo. He challenges stasis. He challenges entitlement. He challenges power because each one of those are death-dealing because what they do is they deny the reality of judgment in our midst. Abundant life, on the other hand, is primarily framed in fruitful living. There's a harmony between being who we are, and the practice, what we do. And so repentance, according to John, is actually meaningless if it bears no fruit. Of course, those who heard John's message were struggling with what their response to that message needed to be. And so there are different groups of people, it tells us in Luke chapter 3, verses 10 to 14, who engaged with John about how they're to respond to him. Group number one, that was kind of the general population of all those who had gathered around, they asked the question in response to John's preaching, then what are we to do, John? And so John gives them some very simple advice. He says, well, if you have two tunics, give one of them away. If you have food, Give some of that away. These statements echo the other teachings of Jesus. You might remember Jesus' teaching about giving away one of your tunics if you have two of them. See, what John is indicating here is that the way in which we respond to the message doesn't have to do with kind of intellectual assent. It doesn't have to do with whether or not we agree with what he's saying. It has to do with whether or not we're going to embody what he's saying in our behaviors. If you have two tunics, give one away. These statements, of course, echo the other teachings of Jesus, that they're grounded in behaviors. And it's following suit with what John has already said in this passage in Luke's gospel, that we're to bear fruit 
consistent with repentance. Now, oftentimes uh, people would travel with two tunics. They would be wrapped in, in multiple layers of garments. And John is saying, if you see someone who has no tunic, you should give one of the two you have away. And it's the same with food. That we're to give out of the resources and abundance we have. That's the fruit consistent with repentance. Now, there's a second group there. These are tax collectors. And they ask the exact same question. What are we to do? And John tells them what they're to do. Now, tax collectors, it's a complicated issue in there the ancient world, because there were multiple different kinds of tax collectors. There were those who collected tolls. There were those who collected some kind of trade taxes. There were those who collected taxes on behalf of the Jewish establishment. There were others who collected them on behalf of the Roman establishment. So it's hard to know exactly what kind of tax collector is in, engaged here. But suffice to say, the way a tax collector functioned is that they would purchase the equivalent of a, of a tax franchise. In other words, they would they would purchase from the authorities, whether they be Jewish or whether they be Roman, a, 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 an allocation of taxes to be collected from a particular group of people. And so what they would do is they would collect those taxes, but then they would affix an amount on top of that tax that would be their own income. And many tax collectors were corrupt because they would use this additional amount they could charge on top of the tax they were collecting um, to, you know, extort it from people. And John's advice to the tax collectors is that you should collect no more than you're ordered to. It's totally counterintuitive. The reason people go into tax collecting is because it's a way to make money because you have the power of the state, either the Jewish state or the Roman state behind you, to collect those taxes. So whatever amount you affix for the tax, even with your additional commission, the taxpayer was required to pay. And if they didn't, they could be imprisoned. John's advice to them is counterintuitive. Collect no more than you're ordered to. And so what happens is that the group that's angered by the tax collector needs to move from the people from whom the tax is being collected. In other words, the taxpayer is the one angry at the tax collector. And now that needs to be directed in a different direction. That if you're a tax collector and you're collecting taxes at a far lower rate than all of your other peers, then that means that the guild of tax collectors are now going to be angry with you. John's point is that the aggrieved shouldn't be those who are being exploited. There's a notion of corruption here amongst the tax collectors. And John is saying, don't do that. Only collect what you're required to collect. Don't collect more than that. And this really relates to the third group, the soldiers who were there. Now, these are not Roman soldiers. Uh, the better way to understand the people who uh, Luke describes as soldiers might be to understand them as police. Um, they were probably uh, Herodian soldiers or other Jewish authorities that would accompany tax collectors or other uh, particular civic leaders to kind of maintain the peace around them, if you were, if you will. They they weren't Roman authorities. They were rather Jewish authorities in one way or another. And so they ask the same question to John. What are we supposed to do? And John's response to them is the same. Don't extort money from anyone, nor harass anyone, but be content with your wages. See, the advice is the same whether it's the soldiers, the tax collectors, or the general population. If this is about behaviors and practices, don't extort, don't harass, and just simply be content 
with what you have. It's counterintuitive because the tax collectors and soldiers easily had the power to abuse their capacities, but instead they're told to restrain them. And that opens us up to the key passageway here, that vocation is an opportunity to practice the justice of generosity. See, in our minds, justice is often a matter of equality or even equity. But God's justice is even different from that. God's justice is extravagant, and we're called to be agents in it. It's akin to what John the Baptist tells each of these groups. If you have two tunics, give one away. Don't collect more money from people than you're supposed to. Don't extort from people and abuse them. It, it's, it's about practicing an extravagance in the way in which we're called to live, whether we're part of the general population, a tax collector, or even a soldier. Notice that John doesn't tell tax collectors to stop being tax collectors, nor does he tell soldiers to not be soldiers. He doesn't tell anyone to get a new job. What he tells them to do is to use their work to bring a peculiar practice, and that practice is generosity. See, a heart of gratitude overflows into a life of generosity. And generosity, gratitude, and extravagance are signs of God's justice in the world. So as this episode in Luke's gospel comes to an end, about John's preaching in the wilderness, people, of course, are beginning to wonder whether or not John himself is this Messiah that everyone's been waiting for. The messianic expectations in this day were high. So in verses 15 to 18 of Luke chapter 3, we read about how people are trying to process these messianic expectations. Is, is John the one who's finally coming to liberate us from Roman rule? Is he the one to set Israel free? Is he the one we've been waiting for? And what John says in response is really peculiar and quite interesting. He says that he baptizes with water, but there's one coming who will baptize them with fire. Now, in that sentence that we can read there in verse 16, there's um, some other language in between where it says, as for me, I baptize you with water. And then he adds in the middle, but he is coming who is mightier than I am. I, I am not fit to untie the straps of his sandals. Then he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So really what you want to hold are the front and the end of that statement. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's the contrast. And the contrast is meaningful because John baptizes with water, which is a cleansing of the outside of the body. The baptism of fire that's coming is going to be a cleansing from the inside. And it's kind of two metaphors set side to side. Uh, baptizing in water washes the external, but it does nothing to clean the inside of anything. It's just the ritual washing of the outside. In many ways, this baptism of water is symbolic of an act of internal purification. But John says that that there's one coming who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And this is a different kind of purification. This purification by fire is the way in which metals are purified, that uh, the heat is increased so that impurities can be removed. It's a more holistic form of a cleansing. 
You see, the baptism with water that John offers is a bit of a symbol, whereas the other, this baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire, is a reality. And it's for this reason that John has the language that's in, in the middle of that sentence. It's this reason that the one who's coming after him is greater than him. John says, I shouldn't even be, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. The untying of sandals was the most menial of all tasks in any household. It was reserved for the lowest servant in the house. And what we're reading about here is that the alignment together of this baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire is not totally foreign in Scripture. The Spirit's coming is a form of judgment. And this judgment oftentimes we perceive as being punitive, but perhaps it's not quite as punitive as we think. And John concludes his statement about this coming of this baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire this way. He says this, his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. What John's talking about is the final act that goes on in the harvest of any kind of grain, like wheat or barley. You know, typically it would start out with by picking the heads of grain, bringing them together in a gathering, and then there's a winnowing that happens. And it usually occurred with a shovel in which the, the grain would be put on a threshing floor and it would be thrown into the air. And as it's thrown in the air and rubs against each other on the ground and in the air, the chaff or the, the, the encasing substance around the grain would be released. And it was much lighter than the grain, so the grain would fall back down to the ground. But the chaff or that uh, casing would drift off of the threshing floor to its perimeter. So the grain would come down, the chaff would blow away. When everything was done, when the, the grain had been thrown in the air enough times so that the chaff had been removed, then the grain was gathered together and put in the barn, and then the chaff was all swept together, and it was burned along with everything else. So what John is describing isn't the beginning or the middle of the harvesting process. He's actually describing the very last act of the harvest, when the grain is gathered and the chaff is burned. This is important for us to hear because uh, the key passageway here is this, that judgment is the advent of pure love, that God's radiating love in Jesus Christ reveals all. So think of judgment less in a judicial model and think of it more as a therapeutic model. You see, all that is evil broken and damaging will be done away with, almost like a, a, a virus or a bacteria. The Holy Spirit does that work in us so that the judgment of God begins in us as the love of God sanctifies us from the inside out. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire, that we are sanctified. And then from our own cleansing from the inside out, we bear that same light into the world. So it's really important when we think about judgment in the New Testament, oftentimes it's framed in language that's hard for us to grasp. But when we look at the narrative of the New Testament, the life of Jesus, the writings of the, of the New Testament church, we begin to understand that the model here is more like a visit to the doctor for healing rather than going to a judge for punishment. 
It's a therapeutic model so that judgment, in a sense, is the way in which evil and brokenness and illness and infirmity are rooted out of us, that we're purified to become wholly the people God has called us to be so that we might lead the world to the, the place that it can be by the redemptive grace of God. That's it for this week. I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.